In our passage this morning, Jesus tells us that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. He means that the, the world is ready and waiting to hear the gospel proclaimed, but we need more people willing to proclaim it. And our problem today is not just that the laborers are few, but often that we as laborers don't quite know how to proclaim it or what we are to proclaim. Specifically, you know, we, we know that we need to share the gospel, but our question often is, well, how? Um, in our passage this morning in Luke chapter 10, Jesus is going to send out some of his disciples. And he sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. And what we're going to see is that there are three things particularly that he wants them to proclaim about the kingdom. And so I hope that studying these will prepare us and help us know better how we are to proclaim the kingdom. Um, so if you have your Bible, if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 1, and we're going to read all the way to 24. Um, so if you are able, if you would stand for the reading of God's word. After this, the Lord appeared, appointing the 72 others, and sent them on ahead of him two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive it, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if mighty works, had been, mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre or in Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades." For the one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects me, rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. And the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. On that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the who, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and any to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Then turning to the disciples, He said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you, many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. The grass withers and the flower fades, 
but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that we are blessed to hear and to see the things that the prophets and the kings only dreamed of. I pray that we would not just hear and see them, but that we would accept them, that we would receive them, that we would be transformed by them and be more like your son, Jesus. We pray this in your holy and in your precious name. Amen. You can be seated. Um, our first thing that we are to proclaim about the kingdom of God is we are to proclaim the kingdom's peace. We are to proclaim the kingdom's peace. That We, as disciples of Jesus, are to proclaim the peace of the kingdom of God. And by we're to proclaim that the peace with God is possible. We're supposed to proclaim that the shalom, the restoration to the way things were in Eden is here, that the Prince of Peace is coming to town. In verse 1, it says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So Jesus, he's commissioning more disciples. If you're here, you may remember in chapter 9, it began with Jesus sending out the 12 apostles. Now he sends out even more. He appoints so many more that we don't know all of their names. But they are given a mission just like the disciples were. They're to go ahead of Jesus to prepare the way. As John the Baptist prepared the way for the Messiah to come, so will they. They will walk into each village and to each town ahead of Jesus and to say, Jesus is coming. Verse 2, and he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I don't know about you, I've typically heard these verses at like missions conferences. And the message usually is, okay, you know, calling us to join in the harvest. Now, Jesus does say the harvest is big, and he does say there's not enough workers, but he doesn't tell us to go and find them. Jesus doesn't command us to train them. What Jesus says is, therefore, pray. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into our harvest. We are to pray that God would raise up these laborers. We are to pray earnestly and continually that God would train those who will go and who will proclaim his kingdom. And then look what he says next in verse 3. He says, go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. So in that middle part again there, I am sending you. Jesus is the Lord of the harvest and he is sending out more laborers. He sent out 12 in verse 9 and now he is sending out six times as many. The 72. The Lord of the harvest is doing his work. But he gives them a warning. He says, again, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. He says, disciples, as followers, we are to proclaim the peace of the kingdom of God. But that does not mean that we will always experience peace. So even as the lamb, we are to be lambs of peace, but the world is a place of wolves. There will be opposition, even to those who preach peace, that there will be wolves who try to eat the sheep, to devour them. The wolves, it's also, I think, a reference to Ezekiel 22, verse 27. It's also a reference to Zephaniah 3, 3. Both of those prophets refer to the leaders of cities as wolves. And Jesus is telling them and warning them, there will not just be some wolves, there will be leaders of these places that you will go to, and they will oppose the gospel. You will have to face powerful wolves, but I'm sending you as lambs of peace. 
So how are we to prepare for this message? How are we to prepare for proclaiming peace even amongst wolves? He says in verse 4, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. These commands are similar to what the disciples heard in chapter 9. The money, the money bag and the knapsack, it's not just their wallet and their supplies. Really, Jesus is talking about this is something um, that traveling preachers, philosophers, teachers would carry around with them to pass around like the offering plate. Okay, now I've done speaking. Here you go. Give me some money. Jesus says, no, leave that behind. They're not to look like traveling, grifting preachers. They're also not to take sandals. They're to walk shoeless through Israel's wilderness and the countryside. Now, not having shoes, that's a symbol of poverty. Even today, if you saw someone with dirty feet and no shoes, you would assume they must not have any money. Something's wrong. This is how Jesus chooses to send his messengers. They are to go wearing only the sandals of peace from the armors of God. Ephesians 6, and they're not to also greet anyone on the road. This command is meant to show the urgency of their mission. They are to go and to proclaim the peace of the kingdom of God. They're not going ahead to make friends or just to have a good time. They're not going ahead to just meet whoever they will and enjoy the journey. I think this also, it's not just saying like, hey, don't say hi to somebody. I think he's also saying, hey, as you're going to where I send you, don't stop at your uncle's house that's on the way. Don't make pit stops. You're to proclaim the peace of the kingdom of God and is of the utmost importance. Nothing needs to get in the way of that. Verse 5, he says, whatever house you enter, first say peace be to this house. They're to say peace be on this house, and they're proclaiming the peace of God. This is not just meant to be like an idle greeting, like we might say good morning. They're really saying, may God be with you. It is an announcement that the God of peace that the Prince of Peace is on His way. And He can come to this house. And His peace can enter into this place. It can enter into your life if you will receive Him. And this peace is very real. If you see in 6, it says, And if a son of peace is there, your peace is going to rest upon him. But if not, the peace will return to you. So if there are those there who are really sons of peace, if they are children of peace, they can receive it. What he means is if someone is willing to accept the peace of God, someone is willing to prepare themselves for the arrival of Jesus, then they get to have the peace of the kingdom. They will no longer be children of wrath or children of sin, but children of peace. And this peace is available to anybody, anyone who is willing to receive it. And this is how real the peace is. If you look at it again, and it says, but if not, that peace will return to you. So if someone doesn't accept the peace that is offered, it doesn't just disappear into the ether. It doesn't float away and go into the heavens. The peace doesn't drop to the ground. The peace isn't just words that go in one ear and out the other as if it is a normal saying. When you proclaim the peace of God, you are proclaiming something that is tangible. When you proclaim the peace of the kingdom, you are proclaiming something that is very real and substantive. It is a force. It is moving and it is active and it is working. And it is active and it works even if the person you proclaim it to rejects it and wants nothing to do with it. That peace just comes back and rests on you. This means is that every time the gospel is preached, it is not wasted. Every time that you proclaim the peace of Jesus, if it doesn't bless the hearers, it will bless you. Because the gospel is powerful and the peace of Jesus, it is active and it is always moving. 
It can either bless the person who hears it and accepts it or will bless the one who speaks it. And that peace will come and rest on us. And the blessing that comes from proclaiming the peace of God, part of that blessing is getting to see people become sons and daughters of peace. Seeing people come, accept Jesus, and become part of his family. And that blessing should be enough. But he also tells us in 7, And remain in the same house, gives further directions, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Again, the heart of this is he's saying that you are not to take advantage of people. That as you go and you proclaim my peace, um, you're to take care of those who care for you. The first house that receives you, stay there. They're not to bounce from house to house, getting to the biggest house, the nicest accommodations, or the people who have the most influence, or even the people you might like more. The first person that receives you, stay there. The perverse person who welcomes you as a proclaimer of peace, if they live in the shack on the end of town, that's where you're staying until it's time to move on. And then to eat and to drink whatever the host offers them, eating and drinking what they provide. But there's also, you see too, there is the expectation that they would be provided for. This is the reason Jesus says, don't take anything with you as you go to proclaim my peace, because the sons and daughters of peace will find you and receive you and they will care for you. And as workers of the kingdom, they deserve to be paid for their labor. This is part of where we get the idea um, that it's good and right to pay people who serve Christ's church as pastors and leaders and ministers of the gospel. However, they're also not supposed to go house to house trying to just maximize their profits or pad their own pockets. They should be provided for and given enough, but they need to be made sure as well they're not taking advantage over them who are giving to them. Verse 8, he says, and whatever you enter the town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. He says it again. He's hitting this home that you are to accept what is given. When someone sets dinner in front of you, don't ask for something else. They're not to be picky eaters. I don't know about you, I can be a picky eater sometimes. As my wife will attest. Um, I think I've gotten much better over the years, but I've got a long ways to go probably. Um, however, if you invite me over to your house, you may put something before me that I would not choose to eat. If you put it before me, I'm going to eat it. I'm going to eat it. I'm going to say thank you, even if I don't like it. Okay, that's part. And then I'm going to thank you and we'll move on. Um, that's part of what Jesus wants the disciples to do, right? As he says, if they put it in front of you, don't say, oh, you know what? That's really not my favorite. I really prefer there to be no onions. I'm not really a big nut fan. You just, just eat it. Accept what you've been given because it's a gift. This is not a restaurant where you can order what you want. But it's also saying, trust that God is going to provide for you what you need, even if it's not quite what you would choose. However, there's also something deeper happening here. This is also a foreshadowing of the book of Acts. This foreshadowing that Jesus is going to tell Peter, Peter, take and eat what I've presented in front of you. Okay, a good Jew would be very horrified to hear Jesus command, whatever gets set before you eat. He would say, whoa, whoa, what do you mean, whatever? There's a bunch of rules. We have a list of laws of what I can and cannot eat. I, I'm just asking to make sure that they're following it. But after Jesus' resurrection, the law will be fulfilled. And the Gentiles and their food will be accepted in the kingdom. And this moment is just a hint and a foreshadowing that one day they should and, should and they will accept everything that is set in front of them, even if it is from Gentiles. In the 9, he also says, and heal the sick in them. The sick in the town and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. Jesus very quickly, just kind of in the middle of that, oh yeah, and heal the sick. 
which shows us that they too, these 72, have been given the authority like the disciples to heal sickness and to cast out demons. And the miracles, they are part of the proof that they truly are messengers of Jesus, that they are coming as his emissaries and the emissaries of the one who can heal all of our infirmities. But it also shows that they are to care for the very real needs of the people that they're serving and proclaiming. They are not just there to talk about spiritual things. They are also there to meet their very real physical needs. So part of our proclamation of peace should also be to try to bring peace to people's circumstances as much as we can. Now, we may not be able to heal the sick, but we can help the sick. We can give to the poor. We can pray for the needy. We can look for ways to serve those who are among us and who meet the needs of those who need the peace of the kingdom of God. But he also says you're to say and to proclaim the kingdom of God has come near to you. Or to say the kingdom is near. Your translation might say the reign of God has come near to you. Now we might not be able to proclaim that we can hear the sick, but we can proclaim the main message of the disciples. Which is that God's peace is here. It's close. It's not too far away. Um, the place where God reigns is not out of your reach. It doesn't elude your grasp. It is quite literally knocking on your door if you will open it and receive it. And that's still true today. If you wonder if you can be a part of God's kingdom, the answer is yes. If you hear of the peace that passes all understanding, the kind of peace that can leave you calm even as you face incredible suffering and death, the kind of peace that can deal with all of your sin and your unrighteousness, the kind of peace that can bring restoration in between you and God and the restoration of your life so that when God sees you and He looks at you, He won't shake His head and be disappointed. He won't see a sinner. He will look at you and He will smile in love. That kind of peace is near and it is here. You just have to come and accept it. You just have to be willing to say, yes, Jesus, I want your peace. Jesus, I want you to come into my life. Jesus, I want to be part of the kingdom. And if you are willing to receive Jesus, that peace and all of its power will come and rest upon you. So the good news is that there is peace available to anyone who wants it. But we are not only to proclaim the peace and the good news of the kingdom. The gospel also has bad news. Point number two is that we are to proclaim the kingdom's judgment. We are to proclaim the kingdom's judgment. We are also to proclaim this. Um, it is not just that there is peace for those who want it. It is also for those who reject it. They will face the judgment of the kingdom of God. Verse 10, whenever you enter a town and they don't receive you, go into its streets and say even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we will wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. Again, like Luke 9, we see this idea of the shaking of dust from your feet. It's a proclamation. Okay, you don't want anything to do with the peace of the kingdom of God? Then the peace of the kingdom of God will have nothing to do with you. And it says they're not just supposed to take this action by themselves off in the distance symbolically. They're supposed to say this in the streets. Hey, we're wiping the dust off of our feet. They're also to say that the kingdom of God has come near. This was your chance to see Jesus. This was your chance to be welcomed into the kingdom of God. But you have rejected it and you have turned aside. And now one day when you stand before the throne of that king, you too will be rejected. And you will not be able to say on the day of your death that you didn't know, that no one told you. 
And then Jesus tells them also, not just, he's not just telling them something extreme, he is telling them to say something extreme, to proclaim something about God's judgment. 12, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. They are to proclaim that judgment is coming to them. And part of proclaiming the gospel, this can be a part that we either ignore or that we overemphasize, but whatever we do, we must proclaim it. He says, if you don't receive the gospel, you are going to be punished for eternity. And it's not going to be a light punishment. It's not going to be like annihilationism. You'll just kind of cease to exist and it'll be okay. It's not going to be like purgatory where your punishment is meant to be disciplinary or redemptive. Eventually it'll end and you'll get out of it. Um, your punishment is going to be worse than the punishment that Sodom and Gomorrah will receive. And there too, they're to proclaim this. To proclaim that the towns that reject the gospel and have nothing to do, want nothing to do with the peace of Jesus, they will face a harsher judgment than the town that raped women to death. The town, the worst city that they could think of, a town that hoarded its wealth and took advantage of the poor, a town filled with sexual dysfunction, that any city that rejects Jesus will face more judgment than that one. More judgment than the one that God rained down fire and sulfur from the sky to wipe off of the map. The city that when Lot's wife just looked back at it, she was turned into a pillar of salt. Jesus says this because rejecting the gospel, it does bring judgment. You can have the peace of the kingdom or you can have the gospel's judgment, but you're going to get one of them. And the choice that you make has eternal consequences. 13, he says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Jesus doesn't just say, hey, say that. He also says, now you are to say this, proclaim woes. And woe, it's a word that the prophets would use to signal judgment. The signal of the undoing or the judgment of God that you are proclaiming. It says it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. These two cities, um, Chorazin and Bethsaida, that are mentioned there, that are going to face judgment because they reject the message of Jesus. Um, these are the cities or the homes of Andrew and Peter and Philip, some of Christ's disciples. It's also near these cities that Jesus fed over 5,000 people miraculously. Jesus has healed the sick and worked miracles in their midst. They know that they have heard the peace of the kingdom of God and they have rejected it. And because of their rejection, they're going to face God's judgment and they're going to be judged worse than two other Gentile cities. Tyre and Sidon, you can read about those cities if you want uh, more in Isaiah chapter 23 or Ezekiel 26 and 28. There's other places as well, but those are two places that they're mentioned. Those cities are cursed throughout the Old Testament because of their sin, because of their tyranny and their oppression of the people of Israel and their wickedness. Jewish people would have known those cities. They wouldn't have had to look it up or study it. They would have known them and they would have hated them. And Jesus wants his disciples to tell people, yeah, those cities that you know and you hate and are so glad that God will judge and has judged, yeah, they're going to have it easier than you if you reject the gospel. Verse 15, and you, Capernaum, will you be exalted into heaven? No, you shall be brought down to Hades. Mentions Capernaum. Capernaum is first mentioned in the gospel of Luke in chapter 4, verse 23. It's one of the first cities that Jesus worked miracles in. 
In Luke's gospel, we don't even see those miracles. We just hear about them when he comes to his hometown. He mentions them in his very first sermon. He says, all of those mighty works that I did, all of the wonderful things that you have seen, they will not help you. So do you think you can just be exalted to heaven because of your works and how good and awesome you are? You will not. You'll be brought down to Hades and death and hell. 16, the one who hears you, hears me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Jesus reminds his disciples that we are but heralds, that we are not to be speaking our own judgment, our own ideas, but the judgment of God. We don't offer our own peace, but we offer the peace of God. And when we proclaim the gospel of Jesus, we're to proclaim the offer of his peace, and we're also to proclaim the reminder of his judgment. And we proclaim it in his place, that those who hear the words of the gospel through our lips, they hear the voice of Jesus. And they, when they reject you, which will happen, when they reject the proclamation of it, they are not rejecting your words, your proclamation, but the proclamation of Jesus, of his judgment. Now, one of the applications we have to see here, I think, is that we are to proclaim the judgment of God. Now, it's not meant to be the only thing that we proclaim. It also seems like it's not meant to be the first thing that we proclaim either. We start with peace. Um... So it's not what the disciples are supposed to lead with, but they're to be honest. They are to warn the people and to audibly say that those who reject the message and the free offer of the peace of Jesus, you are going to have to face his judgment. It's not something that we are to hide. It's not something that we are to downplay. So don't think it's something that we are to be ashamed of, but it is something that we must proclaim. Honestly, this is part of the Bible that I struggle with. I don't like preaching God's judgment. Peace is a lot more fun to preach than woe. And yet, God commands us to. And yet it's true. It would be unloving and unkind to pretend that judgment wasn't coming. And so we must. But I think as we proclaim it, we should proclaim it with a heavy heart. I don't understand how you could proclaim the terror and the very real horror of God's judgment with glee and with joy as if it's fun or exciting. We should proclaim it as if we're warning somebody of a fate that we really do not want them to have to face. But we must proclaim it. So we proclaim God's peace, we proclaim his judgment. Point number three, we also are to proclaim the kingdom's joy. Last but not least, we proclaim the joy of the kingdom. You notice judgment is sandwiched between peace and joy. Um, it's there, but it's not meant to be the main thing that we proclaim or that we leave with. The, 17, the 72 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. They come back in joy. They're dancing. They're singing. They're celebrating. Um, they're running excited like little kids run to tell their parents about the new thing that they just did. Look how high I can jump. Look what I just did. Look what we did, Jesus. And part of what they're celebrating is they're able to cast out demons, which if you could cast out demons, you would probably celebrate and run and be very excited about that too. But notice how Jesus responds in 18. And he says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus doesn't say, oh, that's cute. That's nice. Jesus says, actually, something more amazing than you can imagine is happening. 
He says Satan is falling. It appears as if Jesus is trying to get his disciples to lift their eyes up. Um, They're excited about winning some one-on-one battles with demons. But what they're not recognizing, Jesus says, is that as you are proclaiming the gospel, as you are proclaiming that the kingdom of God is coming and it is here, you are actually bringing about and leading to the downfall of Satan and his kingdom. That's Satan's throne in the spiritual realm or in the heavens. It's not the heaven where God reigns that he's talking about, but the throne wherever Satan is sitting on, he is being cast down. He might be kicking and screaming and he might be fighting back, but the war is no longer in his favor. It is all on the downward trend. And he wants them to see and us to see that when we proclaim the gospel, we are engaging in spiritual warfare that defeats Satan our adversaries, that even when people reject it, Satan is being defeated. That should lead to us proclaiming with joy. 19, he says, for behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. He reminds them again that he has given them authority that when they tread, not just on the physical snakes and scorpions, that those just won't not hurt them like it didn't hurt Paul when he was bitten by a snake in the book of Acts. And it doesn't just mean that God will keep them safe as they walk through the wilderness with no shoes on their feet, that God will protect their feet. It is also a reminder that their feet can and will help crush the head of the serpent, that the enemy has no power over them, that the enemy will not just be kept from defeating them, but he will be kept from being able to harm them at all. Verse 20, but nevertheless, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. We are not meant to have joy that demons listen to us. We are not just, we are to rejoice, not just that Satan is being defeated. We are to rejoice that we have the peace of God, to rejoice that our salvation is secure, to rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, which means that you are saved and it is not coming out will never be erased. Verse 21, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for it was your gracious will. Jesus then gives an answer of how we're to rejoice, how we're to proclaim his joy. One of the ways that we do this is through rejoicing prayers. Jesus gives an example of another prayer that we should model here. Um, He praises and rejoices to God that these 72 disciples get to see the secrets of the kingdom. That the downfall of Satan, that understanding the reality of the kingdom, getting the privilege to proclaim it, it doesn't go to the greatest people in Israel. It doesn't go to the 72 most righteous. That privilege doesn't go to the high priests or to the scribes or the Pharisees or to kings or to governors. It goes to little children. Because in God's gracious will, for it was your gracious will, he chooses to use the weak things of the world to shame the wise. That God is not looking for the greatest people to be a part of his kingdom, that often he looks for the weakest, the lowest, the overlooked. 22, all the things have been handed over to me by my father, and no one knows who the son is except the father, or who the father is except the son, and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal himself. Okay, at first that can seem confusing. Um, Maybe you had to read it like I did a couple times to try and go, wait, what what are you trying to say, Jesus? 
And what he's trying to get across here, the point is that the disciples get to understand the secrets of the kingdom of God because Jesus is telling them. And Jesus is telling them as a representative of God the Father, as his mediator, as our mediator between us. Because the things of God are hidden from us. We need someone to explain it. We need someone to go to God, to speak to him, to see him, and then to come back and tell us what he says. And so Jesus, as God and as man, is that mediator. And Jesus, in his grace, he is pulling back the curtain and he's letting us see behind the scenes. He's revealing the secrets of the kingdom of God that we get to proclaim. In 23, in turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you, many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, to hear what you hear and did not hear it. He tells the disciples, and really us as well, we are so blessed and lucky. They should be celebrating as joyous as they are of what they have seen and have done because it's worth celebrating. There's a long list of prophets and of kings who would have done anything to get in their shoes. There's a long list of prophets and kings who would do anything to get to be in your shoes, to get to see the end of the story and what Jesus came and said and did. Elijah would have happily changed places with one of these nameless 72. Solomon would have traded all of the gold in his kingdom to get to be one of them. King David would have let somebody else kill Goliath. Isaiah would have been happy to let someone else see God in the throne room. Jonah definitely would have been happy to let someone else experience the miracle of being swallowed by a whale and spat back up whole. Joshua, who saw the walls of Jericho come tumbling down and God stopped the sun and the moon and the stars from moving, would have traded places with any of them to be, get to be able to proclaim the gospel, that the kingdom of God is here. Many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and to hear what you hear. Getting to proclaim the gospel should be a joy. It should not be a burden. Um, it shouldn't be something that we sit and think, oh, yeah, I really should be proclaiming the gospel more. I guess I don't really get to do that. We should proclaim the joy of the kingdom of God with joy because it is the greatest thing in the world and it is worth celebrating. And we should proclaim it with joy. We should proclaim the joy of eternal life, the joy of the secrets of the kingdom, and the joy of Jesus is available to anyone who would come in faith. So where have we been this morning? Well, we need to proclaim the peace of the kingdom, the judgment of the kingdom, and the joy of the kingdom. So I hope that we can go forth this morning as workers of the plentiful harvest, as workers that are sent by our Lord and our Savior, and let us go forth proclaiming the kingdom of God. Let's bow our heads and pray as our team comes up to lead us in worship once more. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with the peace and with the joy of your kingdom. Lord, that you would fill us with your boldness and that you would send us to proclaim it. Lord, that we would not be ashamed of the things that we have seen, of the things that we have heard, and the things that we have read. Give us boldness to proclaim them even knowing we may be rejected, even knowing that people may think us fools. Lord, because the kingdom of God is so unbelievable, 
so incredible. It is something that our ancestors dreamed of getting to see, and they only saw it darkly from afar. Lord, encourage us. Remind us of the wonderful joys and blessings that we have, the privilege that it is to get to proclaim your kingdom. And help us to do so, that we may see people come and join us as brothers and sisters and as your sons and daughters in the kingdom of God. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Why don't you stand as we worship our Savior through song once more. Amen. As mercies are worth singing about. Um, just a reminder, the baby sprinkle shower for Megan and Caleb is going to be over there right after service. So make sure you stop by um, and show them your love. Um, our benediction this morning is from 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. God bless you. Go in the peace of the kingdom.